We're in a section of this story where Jesus has made a prediction, if you recall, and he made this prediction to his disciples in the upper room, and he said, if you recall, you will all fall away. And what we're going to find here is Jesus in the garden, and the prediction becomes a reality. So I want us to read verse 43, and you're going to see a story that's filled with betrayal, arresting Jesus, violence, and if I may, streaking. If you don't know what that is, you'll find out in just a moment. And this is not me making this up. This is the Bible, okay? Bible here, Matthew here. Verse 43, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who, drew, who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. See, I told you, streaking right there. Let's pray. God, once again, we come before you just asking you to help us with your word, God. Thank you, Lord, that maybe some of us have come in this room searching, looking for some divine word. We are so grateful that you just spoke to us. Your word brings life. It is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It sharpens us. It, it makes us more into the image of Christ. So, Lord, we just ask that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see you for who you are, a heart to receive your word, and hands and feet to do your word that we may all leave this room collectively saying, how glorious is our King Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. As I said, this is a story that we just read, one of which surrounds betrayal, arresting, um, gory, right? The dude just got his ear cut off. Not just gore, but a little bit of medic, uh, Dr. Jesus coming back onto the scene and popping the ear back on. And we also see the streaker here, and we'll get into all of that in just a moment. But if you remember what we said, Jesus makes this prediction, and this prediction comes true, that one of you will betray me, and all of you will leave me. You'll forsake me. And we know the one who betrayed Jesus is in this story, and he has come to Jesus with these guards and with the religious establishment. Now, just a little bit of context on that little part right there, if I may. Uh, the high priest in Jesus's day, they were allotted from the Roman Empire, sort of like this small militia or a small gang 
little small army, and they, they did their biddings for them. If, if I may, they would go about and collect the tithes from the people. In fact, the historian Josephus, the secularist historian Josephus, comments on about how the high priest and their minions, basically, uh, sitting here to grab Jesus, and he comments and he says this about them. Such was the shamelessness of the ruling priest that they actually were so brazen as to send slaves to the threshing floors to receive the tithes that were due to the priest with the result that the poor priest would starve to death. So Josephus is painting this picture of these, this militia, the same militia that the religious establishment used to arrest Jesus are the ones that do the, the disgusting biddings of the religious establishment. We, in other words, we ask you if you are able to give, scan this QR code or drop something in the box. The religious establishment in Jesus's time was sending people knocking on your door. You ain't paid your dues. You ain't paid your tithes. Where is it at? And it don't matter if you are poor or whatever. They didn't care. They're going to send this type of militia to go collect what they thought was theirs. It's, that's another way of doing church. And somebody should have said, amen, we ain't doing church like that. Now, I do know some churches that be sending you some letters and asking you, where's your money? And, you know, they, they wrong for that, okay? I ain't sending y'all there one letter, so don't worry about it, okay? If you get a letter from me, it's probably bad, okay? But I ain't doing that. But this is what they're doing. This is the, the evilness, the religious establishment that is facing the people of Jesus' time. Now, it, it poses so many questions in here, like why, the, why, why this, this guard, why this, uh, why this militia? It just seems needless that they need a, a militia to come to Jesus. And so notice what, what, what happens here. Notice how they're going to describe the one who is the, the person, the, the, the criminal that needs to be arrested. And, and they use a kiss. Now, isn't that interesting? Why, why a kiss? Why do they need a kiss at all? Why need to identify Jesus at all? It doesn't seem like Jesus has this uh, notoriety. He has this popularity. Jesus seems to be famous, and he's kind of known throughout the land. Like, why identify him with this greeting? And then we don't understand that because we don't come up to people and, like, kiss them on the cheek. And maybe you do, you know, like, but whatever, and, and, but we don't really identify, but this is like, this is the closeness of the brotherhood, like they would kiss each other, and so you got to understand, like, this militia, this Roman guard, they probably never seen Jesus's face. Not only that is they've got to have some way to identify, make sure they've got the right guy, okay? What, what time of day is this? Nighttime. What, what, Where's the sun at at nighttime? It's, it's on the other side of the earth. It's dark. So they've got to have some way of figuring out who this Jesus is that they're supposed to be arresting. Remember, there's no social media. There's no TV. There's nobody with their phones capturing Jesus, throwing it on their, their Instagram, saying, hey, here's the guy who's doing all the miracles. So it's, it's got to be some way to identify who is the right guy that we need to arrest. And Jesus, with the common greeting of a student and a rabbi, Judas comes to Jesus 
And he kisses him. And that, that just seems so wrong, right? Like, let me come back to you and approach you as my rabbi, even though I've already betrayed you, give you the greeting of a student to a rabbi. Now, now watch what happens. The, the ear. Isn't that a weird part of the story? There's so many weird things happening in this story. Like when I read this, I'm like, wow, you know, I thought my life was dramatic, but this is a very dramatic scene here. So we got this ear situation. We, 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 we can't over, we can't skim by this. In verse 46, the men seized Jesus, arrested him, the one of the standing near, drew his sword, struck the servant, the high priest cutting off his ear. They arrest Jesus. What an interesting thing that's taking place. In John's account, who's the man who used his sword? Who's the guy? You might remember? Peter. Oh, Pete. You know, they, we give Pete, okay, we, we kind of view this in two different ways, don't we? One of the ways is that we think Peter has incredibly horrible aim. <laughs> right? Why, why are you going right. to cut an ear off? Isn't that the most awkward, most random thing ever? An ear? So when I look at this, I'm like, Peter, you are terrible. Like, put the sword down. You're gonna, you're, you, you, you are going to lose an eye, right? It's like the scene in the, the Christmas story with the BB gun. Like, that's Peter. He right? just shoots himself in the eye. Like this, like Peter, you got bad. Or you probably approach this with like, wait a minute, this isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom isn't the way of a sword. Like, isn't his mode of operation with peace with um, the gospel, with conversation, with like speaking truth into situations that's laced with, like, isn't that the way of Jesus? You know, we, when we think like we just kind of, you know, shove Peter off, like what a disgusting, like, like he's like the second amendment holder of all second amendments, right? You know the Second Amendment, right? Or did I just like gloss over everyone, right? This is and some people would take this text and say, "Say, see, this is the reason why we need to carry guns." And and I, I think that's a horrible exegesis of the text. That Peter's got a sword, right? No big deal. He's got terrible aim. No big deal. Well, that is a big deal for the dude. Jesus responds in other accounts, and he says to him, and he rebukes him, like, did I not tell you that my kingdom is not of this world? In fact, in one of the gospel accounts, Jesus looks out at me and says, in fact, if I wanted to, I can call down a militia of angels and take all of you, and this is me paraphrasing this, take, an all, take all of you out. But Jesus doesn't do that because what's in front of Jesus? Because he knows that the cross is before him. Now back to Peter. Because we got to reconcile what's happening to Peter. And this is just my observation, my thought to this. Maybe it was you just had bad aim, or maybe it was Peter is just, you know, whatever, you know, just leading with emotions, right? What was, what, remember what Jesus just told Peter back in, back just um, a few verses ago? What did, what did Jesus tell Peter? You will deny me three times. And what was Peter's response? Not me, Lord. Not me, Lord. I ain't denying you. And what does Peter do? He looks at the other 10. He's like, probably one of those numbskulls. They're the ones who'll deny you, but not me. So maybe what Peter is doing is trying to prove himself to Jesus. Like, look, see, I told you, I'm not going to leave you. I told you, 
I'm not going to forsake you. And, we, and, and maybe that's a little credit to Peter that he doesn't deserve. But I kind of appreciate that because Peter's trying to prove himself to Jesus. But it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. So Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion? You come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus says, every day you've watched me. I've been teaching in the temple courts. I've been, like, like and, you, and you didn't arrest me then, so you're coming out with this militia. And Jesus is essentially just questioning the whole entire situation. Not the fact that they came, because we all know why they came, and Jesus understood clearly why they came. But it was in the matter of which they came, Jesus is questioning And it leads us to a question here that Jesus is presenting to us and that Jesus even kind of insinuates into in other accounts of this gospel. Am I I leading an earthly, violent insurrection? This is what Jesus is looking at. Am Am I leading some kind of revolution that you thought, that you've seen me with the children in my lap? You've seen me with the woman at the well. You've seen me feed people. You've seen me touch the untouchable. And Jesus questions them. And so it leads us to a question of what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is presenting to us a different type of kingdom that he is bringing about. That will not be led with violence, coercion but will be a spiritual insurrection in the hearts and minds of men and women. Then we get to verse 50, and here's where the things kind of just makes no sense, right? The boy comes out of the house. He's got his undies on, and he runs away with his undies off, right? Isn't that what's happening? I'm not making this up. Read the Bible. Comes out with a cloin. cloin. He comes out with a loincloth. And he runs away. Where's the loincloth? It flew away in the wind. What is the boy now? Naked. Running. You've got to understand, public nudity in this time, all right? I've got to preface it like this. Was shameful absolutely shameful, right? This is why it was, it, it was shameful for, for Christ to be stripped down naked and hanging there on the cross. It was, it was shame. You do this to criminals. In this particular time, anyone who's seen naked would feel the weight of shame. It was just an act of shame. Now, you know, now, <laughs> I, and I preface that to say, you know, nowadays they have like naked bike races. Have you guys heard of that? Nair morning, y'all better say I participated, okay? Because that's nasty. It's nasty. Nobody wants to see it. Cover yourself up. And that's the kind of culture we live in. Folks, on their bicycles in a bicycle parade in nothing. With no shame. 
right, I'll leave that image to you for the rest of the day, and you can thank me later and email me later tonight and say, thank you, now I can't sleep. But here's what's happening. This boy, and I think this is why it's so powerful that this boy mentions, or John Mark mentions this in the Bible, because most scholars would agree, who is the boy? None other than the author of the Gospel of Mark, John Mark himself. Because what we believe is, is the house that they were in the upper room with is John Mark's families. And John Mark sees what's happening. And what he is doing is he is saying, he is attesting and only verifying the claim that Jesus makes and the claim that, Mark's make, that Mark makes that they all left him. They all fled including the one writing this gospel. Now, if you are an atheist or if you are an agnostic or if you are questioning the validity of Scripture, it is Scriptures like this that bring me so much joy and pleasure. Because if, God, if, if Mark is writing this gospel, and indeed he is the one who is writing this gospel, then when I get to the point to where I fled in shame, I'm omitting it, all right? Don't look at me like, well, I wouldn't omit it because I'm a better Christian than you. You'd admit it too. You know, I'm going to write about that time that, that I, had, I was outside in my underwear and Jesus came out and I ran away and my underwear fell off and I was naked. Who's writing that? Why would Mark write this then? Only to validate the story that we're reading about. It's why I love reading some of like Peter's writings and, and, and John's writings, some of their writings because they include all of the, the bad and the ugly parts of their lives. It's just, yeah, and I'm, and I'm saying all of that in passing because it is just another way of them validating what is happening in this story. Everyone left. And, and, and Mark is saying to us, even I would have rather had the shame of nakedness than to go on trial with Jesus. Isn't that powerful? I, whether, I would have rather been in shame in the public than to have walked with Christ the criminal. And they all left him. They all left him, including Mark. That's the passage. Now, we have to reconcile what's happening here. We have to ask the question, what's taking place in this passage? What's, what's the big story that we cannot miss? Because, you know, such stories, such passage of scriptures like this oftentimes are breezed through because I've heard that before. I know this story. I hear this every Passion Week. I have every Easter. We hear the story, but what is happening? And that's the question we have to wrestle with. And what's happening here is that there is a tale of two kingdoms. There's a tale of two kingdoms in this story. In this moment in the garden, it is like the climax of the collision of two kingdoms. The story is a collision of two kingdoms. 
In one instance, you have Jesus's kingdom. And on the other hand, you have the world's kingdom. One of the primary things that Jesus talks about throughout his ministry is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And, and you can really, you could use those two terms synonymously. That here you have the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus has been showing the way of his kingdom throughout this gospel. In fact, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has been an incredible, massive theme throughout the gospel of Mark. And he's been showing us what the kingdom looks like through word, through deed, through all of these supernatural moments. He's been saying things like the last will be first and the first will be last. And you should, you know, bring all of the children. You should esteem the poor. You should do all of these things for. And this is like Jesus kind of rewriting or, or writing rather a new manifesto of what the kingdom of God looks like. And what we find is, is that that manifesto, that way of the kingdom is at complete odds with the kingdom of the world, i.e. the kingdom of the religious establishment. And the problem is, the leaders of this time, they have one way of thinking about the kingdom. And it has been the fuel that has added to their power. Their way of thinking of the kingdom is how can I gain more in life? How can I oppress the poor? How can I use the militia that is brought to us by the Roman Empire to press out so that I can gain more? This has been the way of the kingdom of the world around Jesus. And as we've seen, this is what has been bringing about this struggle and this tension between Jesus and this religious establishment. Because Jesus' way of the kingdom was at complete odds, here we are again, with the kingdom of the religious establishment. It is why the very fact why they hated him and why they were seizing him, why they wanted him killed. Now, what do we say, what do we mean when we say kingdom? Because we've got to all make sure we're on the right, we're, we're all on the way uh, level here. When, when you hear the word kingdom, a kingdom is like a sort of governance or an administration that is a way of ordering to get things done. It's a way of ordering society in a way to get things done. Now, how have we seen Jesus govern so far? And how will we see Jesus govern so far in a way that he can get things done? Well, it's been the ultimate theme is going to be sacrifice. That in the kingdom of Jesus, the way that we get things done in God's kingdom is through sacrifice. So then we have this sort of collision between Jesus' kingdom and the world's kingdom. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what are the values then of the kingdom of the world? The first thing I think about is autonomy. My will. My freedom. Me. What, what, what is going to best suit me? That's the value of the kingdom of the world. And that's the value in, in this day... And, and if I may press, that's the value of the kingdom of the world today. Isn't it in all of, of the articles you read? Isn't it on, on every news site that you see? 
You do you. And that's me paraphrasing it. You live your authentic self. You, you measure your life up towards the standards in which you want to measure them. It's all about you. You live your autonomous self. No one can tell you what to do because you are the ultimate authority in your own life. That's the kingdom of this world. It values comfort, autonomy, It values power, success, money. What can I do to achieve more in life? It values coercion, right? Force. This is the kingdom of the religious establishment. That if you do not bend your knee to our demands, we'll bend your knee for you so that we can get what we think we deserve. Now, if I may, that is exactly the kingdom of the world we live in. Coercion. Manipulation. Asserting a power over you that if you do not do what I tell you to do, then first of all, I'm done with you. But before I'm done with you, I'll get what I am after before I'm done with you. It is at odds with the kingdom of God. How did the the religious establishment, they show up here? Swords, clubs. You know, I got like this this image in my head, like like these rednecks coming out with pitchforks, right? They're like, I'm coming after you right? And, and, and they're coming after him with force and with coercion and to manipulate them. And what Jesus says in verse 48, look back down at what he says, am I leading a rebellion here? That you have to come out with swords, clubs to capture me? Am I, re- am I, have you, have you seen such nonsense that you think you've got to come out here to, to take me by such violence? You see, Jesus is not leading a violent rebellion because the kingdom of God does not advance like every other kingdom on this earth has ever advanced. The kingdom of God, Jesus' revolution, Jesus' insurrection that he is bringing about into the scene with such was a clash with the current kingdoms that they just could not understand. In John's account, Jesus' last few moments, uh, when he's talking to, to one of the, the leaders, he says, he records this, my Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from, sorry, sorry, kingdoms, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It couldn't be more clear to us. That what they're doing here is to continue into their method of operation, into asserting their dominance, into a king, into a leader that will assert his dominance in a totally different way. Now, that, that rubs you the wrong way. Like, wait a minute, Jesus asserting his dominance? You better believe it. But it is not with violence. And there's this tension for us that we have to struggle with. Now, there's three characters in this story that I think we could all identify with. And I'm, I'm almost done. If you just hang with me like five more minutes and, and just kind of like move your arms around. So like, you know, or maybe not if you didn't wear deodorant, that's fine. Um, 
there's plenty of seats in the back for you. But like, like think about the three people. There's three people that I think we could identify here. And maybe the first person is Peter. Maybe you identify with Peter who is overtaken by his emotional concoction of fear and pride to defend everyone, to prove everyone wrong. So he moves into fight or flight mode to find out that's not what Jesus had in mind. Maybe that's, maybe that's some of us only to find out this is not the way that the kingdom of God works. That leading with our emotions, leading with, I'm going to prove everybody wrong, is not the way of the kingdom of God. Maybe you're Judas. And I know some of you are like, I'm not, I would never be Jesus. I would never be Judas. I would, there's no way I would betray. But you just got to remember, like, Judas was pulled, tempted, pulled by the power and authority that was offered by the kingdom of the world. And what did Jesus, Judas do? He took it. He took what he thought was going to be the answer. If I could just have more power, if I could just have more money, if I could just have more authority, then it will appease, I will be satisfied and pleased. You know the rest of the story of Judas, right? He uses the money, bides a field, hangs himself. Why? Because that which what he was searching for could not satisfy him. And the weight of guilt and the weight of shame was too much for him. Or, or, thirdly, you're the naked boy. Not physically. Please. We do ask you to wear clothes. Or you're the naked boy in here who, when push comes to shove, I'm ashamed of Jesus. And I don't care how foolish I look in my shame. I will walk naked in my shame because I want nothing to do with Jesus. You're running from Jesus. When Jesus calls you into a better life, when Jesus is calling you out of the old lifestyle that you have been entangled and in bondage with, Christ calls you out of that. But instead of following after Jesus, you say, no, I would rather continue in my shame. Maybe that's you. We have two questions or, or just one question that we have to wrestle with, and, and, and maybe you've identified with one of those, and maybe you would then identify with this. There's a kingdom that is pulling out your flesh. There's a kingdom that's appeasing you, trying to appease you um, with money, with power, with sex, with whatever, with more things and more, you know... It, because if you, if you value, and, and it's all represented in, in what you value, and that's going to associate you with which kingdom you are a part of. Because if you, if you value money, you will always be the greedy person. If you value power, you will always be the one that steps on the weak to try to get to the next promotion and to the next position in life. If you value sex and beauty, you'll always, hear me, you'll always be sizing yourself up with someone else. Like and then and then what what is the that's the question what do you value or 
You could look at your set of values and say, if I value service, if I value you know, being grateful, being content in all things, if you value generosity, would, would usher in this idea that I have enough. C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says that aim at heaven and, and you likely get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you miss it all. What is C.S. Lewis saying? C.S. Lewis is saying, listen, if, if the kingdom of heaven is your sights, is your set of values that you are aiming towards, then, then you likely get other things thrown in. Now, this isn't like, I'm not talking like prosperity and all this other stuff. I'm talking joy. I'm talking satisfaction. I'm talking peace that the earth cannot give you. And, but, and, then, and, then, and then on the contrary here, C.S. Lewis is saying, but if you aim at the, things, at the kingdom of the earth, what do you get? You get nothing but a miserable, destructive life. And Judas aimed at the world, aimed at the kingdom of the world, led him to what C.S. Lewis says, you got nothing but destruction. That's the story that we're reading about, a tale of two kingdoms. And you have to wrestle, you have to think about this on your own time. What kingdom are you a part of? And listen, if you hear this and you say, well, you're just saying that all I need to do is just have a good value system and, and then that means I'm going to be made good before the Lord. You're wrong. What's happening in the context of the story? We're in the garden. Christ himself is about to go before as the propitiation of our sins, as the atonement of our sins on our behalf. Our sins led him there. That we may be clothed and redeemed with his righteousness, not our own, not our goodness. Now, lastly, there's just one more thing that I just want to mention this briefly in passing. I know I said lastly like three or four times. That's because I grew up as a Pentecostal and you just got it. You never can get it out of you, okay? Lastly, and I mean it this time. Where is Jesus at? Physically. Where's Jesus at? The garden. Throughout scripture, some of the most crucial and critical moments happen where? In a garden, in nature. Maybe God enjoys us being in nature. I don't know. Significant things take place in a garden. Creation in a garden. Fall of man in a garden. Betrayal of Jesus. And you see where I'm going with this? The crucifixion outside. Resurrection in a garden. There are always, when you're looking at this and you start seeing themes like this, there's these interconnecting themes that's taking place. And I, I love this thing about the Bible, right? This isn't, this, when was the last time in the Bible that you saw in scriptures humans fleeing naked in shame in a garden. It was Genesis chapter 3, wasn't it? We, we, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that we witness humans fleeing. And, 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 and what, what happens after they flee? 
Remember the story? An angel comes and he puts the flaming sword as God's judgment that creates a barrier between man and God. This flaming sword. Who can come back into the garden at this point? No one. You've been in exile. You've been wandering around the desert your whole life, wondering, how can I find that satisfaction and that perfected shalom that was in the garden? And it's a question we wrestle with. How can I find that peace in my life that I've been waiting for? And where do we find Jesus at this moment? In the garden. And this is significant here because, because and I believe it's Zachariah says, who can endure the eternal flaming sword of the Lord until Jesus steps into the garden and he takes on the judgment of God via the cross of Christ so that the sword, this flaming sword, this judgment of God would then be removed placed upon Christ on our behalf so that who can go back into the garden? Who can commune with God? Who can be reconciled before the Lord? Who can? We can. How? Because of the cross of Christ, he endured the eternal flame that we might be reconciled and go back to the garden of shalom, of peace, reconciliation, communion with God. There, in a garden, Jesus did that. Now, if I were back in my Pentecostal church, I would have said, I wish I had an amen right there because y'all were real quiet. Period. It's a younger slang some of you don't understand. But Jesus did this in the garden, took the flaming sword on my behalf. So that I can be reconciled back to God. And not just so that I can be reconciled to God, but I can be a part of the kingdom of God. And that leads us back to this question, which kingdom are you a part of? And you've got to reconcile that with your own time. Be made right before the Lord. Repent to him. Turn to Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Christ.